Today, the world is demanding more of products and packaging. They need to meet consumer demands, be sustainable, and travel through different channels. Simply put, companies that make things need to respond faster than ever to change. So let's go beyond the shelf to understand how industry leaders in food and beverage, beauty, CPG, industrials, and more are driving innovation in their products and packaging. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast where we interview the people behind the amazing products we use every day. I'm Laura Fodi, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with retail and CPG maven, Catherine Floten. Catherine has more than 20 years of retail, e-commerce, and CPG experience across brick and mortar, direct to consumer, and B2B channels. She has deep expertise in working with brands in the natural space across all channels and has spent the last several years consulting with growth stage startups and retailers, leading teams in interim and fractional roles focused on change management, growth, and strategic business development. Her prior experience crosses, crosses retailers like Trader Joe's, Dean & DeLuca, and others with a variety of CPG brands in direct-to-consumer and retail channels, private label, food innovation and commercialization, merchandising, traditional and e-commerce. She works at the intersection of brand direct-to-consumer e-commerce and brick-and-mortar retail. These experiences have given her a unique operating expertise that leads to creative problem-solving and team growth. We love that. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Laura. Good to see you. Yeah, great to see you too. You've witnessed some amazing transformations. You know, years ago, it used to be just retail and now there's e-commerce. How did you get your start in this space? You know, it was a total fluke. I had a whole other career before I got into food and retail. And I just sort of fell into being a buyer at Trader Joe's. It was very random. It was in my late 20s and it was relatively new on the East Coast. And they were transforming as a company. And I took a chance. They took a chance on me and it got and it totally changed the course of my career. That's amazing. I'm personally a big fan of Trader Joe's, as I'm sure many listeners are. Arguably, they're one of the most successful retailers that that do private label, I would say. For sure. Um, what's their secret sauce? They are just so successful in what they do. And I loved my experience there. It was an amazing, incredible start to my career in food and retail. You know, I think their specialty is that they are they hold true to their values. They have a very strong buying philosophy and how they source and bring products to market. I also think their small format is really integral to their success. Like their sales per square foot is just not, you can't compare it to other brick and mortar retailers out there. And because of their focus and what they buy and what they bring into the store, I, I think it lends to their success. Absolutely. There's, it's such an interesting case that, you know, I think there's so much we can learn from it as people who think about product innovation and consumer experience during the pandemic i don't believe they ever had an online offering and and they still don't right they still have that the flyer that they have you know every other brand seems to be moving online and yet they seem to stay really true to their their core values you know what are your, what are your thoughts on that it's, it's true. I mean, this store is very analog. It was be, that would be the way that I would describe it. And it's just 
core to who they are. The store is the brand. You go in, you experience what it's like to touch, feel, see these new products. It's this treasure hunt. What am I going to discover in the store today? It's also frustrating to consumers because there's this huge discontinuous nature is sort of what I call it of, of the product set. And I think that that's a challenge, but what it does is create this back to the treasure hunt. It creates that notion of, okay, well, what's, what's going to be new? And you, you discover new favorites, but the online that I, I don't think they'll ever go into online. They just, they want customers in the store. They want to be able to, to talk to you and ask you about your day, talk about their favorite products. They want you to try the products and they're really, really great at it. I mean, never say never, but I mean, I've been gone now for more than a decade, but it's really put an imprint on my life as a consumer and my career, obviously, but they want you in the store. They want you to experience it. And I'm in there at least once a week. So, Oh, absolutely. I think we can all reflect on the products that we loved that were discontinued. And then, you know, I always feel so seen when I go in there because there are products that I don't find anywhere else. Right. And like, I'll give you some examples. There's a peanut butter that has like a combination of like chia seeds and other stuff in it. And I'm like, I've never seen this before. How did they know that I would love this? You know, why isn't Whole Foods doing this? Why, you know, how are they able to, to really create products that are unique and successful that you don't find anywhere else? One thing Trader Joe's is so good at, and this is what I learned when I was there, is that we figured out what consumers didn't know they needed in their lives. And that was the fun part of the job. I actually started as a buyer there and I was a terrible buyer. It's just not my core competency, but I was a really good category manager, category leader, we called them. And I loved the consumer insights, the, you know, the market, what was happening in the marketplace and taking all those learnings and really applying that to figure out what the consumer didn't know they needed. And we were very open to trying new things. We were not, you know, risk, risk was not an issue there. We could test and iterate really quickly and product to market timeframes were so condensed at Trader Joe's. And I think that that's also part of their success. We don't do, they didn't do focus groups. We, I still say we, we just get a product to market. If it works great, we iterate on it. And if it doesn't work, we get rid of it and we try something new. And it, it, it was a great way to sort of test the market, try new things and take a lot of risks that other retailers aren't able to do because of slow times to develop products, slow relationships. I mean, that's another thing about Trader Joe's is they really have deep, deep relationships with their suppliers. And I mean, to this day, I am so close with many suppliers that I've, you know, honed over the years, those relationships are just very much a part of my professional and personal network now. You make so many great points there that I, that I want to reflect on. I, um, the first one is this idea that consumers don't always know what they want. And I, you know, as a marketer, I think so much about my audience, right? What's going to serve them? What are they interested in? But real value creation is when you're offering them some, something new that they can't get anywhere else. Right. And I, and it takes courage. It takes organizational courage to do that because the easy thing to do is say, this flavor is trending right now. Let's make another version of it. It's much harder to say, you know what? These two things are, haven't been done before. They have an interesting flavor profile. We think there's interest because of X, Y, Z. Let's take a chance. It's much harder individually to, to 
feel like you're putting yourself online. You have to have a culture, like you said, where experimentation is rewarded, where you have real relationships with your suppliers. So you can do small runs or be nimble. You know, one thing we're, we're living in very interesting times with inflation and commodity prices. A lot of, I hear a lot about like, how do we drive out costs? Right. And everyone immediately wants to, okay, can we just go to bid and redo, you know, our packet and packaging, for example, and get a better price. And that's such a short sighted view because your suppliers are helping you make your product. And if you have deep relationships with them and they they can be a true extension of your business and your team and not just a vendor, you know, I think about, do you have vendors or do you have suppliers? To me, suppliers are people who you're co-innovating with the deep relationships, the trust, the getting it right, the experimentation where a vendor is someone who, you know, you're not viewing them as that strategic. Do you feel like for, for companies to be successful, they have to move more towards that supplier approach. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's never good to just be transactional. For me, it's about forming a connection, getting in, and it's got to work for both parties. And I've always had that view. I've, I was told early on in my career by the former president of Trader Joe's, who to this day I'm still in touch with, and he's long gone as well, but moved on to do other wonderful things. He told me, you know, never burn a bridge. Sounds like simple advice, but it's actually just sort of proof that the the relationships that are enduring that, and I'm not saying that you cater to the relationship only and do it to serve the needs of the business. It's, it, it's gotta be this partnership. It's a give and take, and it has to work for both parties. You can be sort of tough, but fair is sort of what I learned in being a buyer and a category manager and, and sort of just handling some product development in the later years of my career there. Those relationships, if you can build enduring relationships that work for both of your businesses, that's what's going to result in long-term success. I always try to make longer term decisions, the short term decisions always backfired. And, you know, we all make mistakes. We learn from those mistakes. And that was something that was back then very much allowed. We were allowed to make mistakes. You, you tried not to make them twice, I think was the, was the real key. Taking all those lessons and applied that to sort of later relationships in my career or, or but back to your question, just it, it can't be transactional. It's got to be an enduring relationship that works for both parties. It's a true partnership. If it's not, then it's just, it's just at the surface and it's not going to last. Yeah. You know, I always think about this idea of skewzilla, right? You know, 10 flavors of everything, 50 different seltzer types. And, and as a consumer, I'm a huge fan, right? Sometimes I want a grapefruit seltzer. Sometimes I want a lemon lime. Sometimes I want a half iced tea. But this can be an absolute nightmare for companies when it comes to trying to balance profitability. Because the smaller counts you have, the more product complexity, the more difficult it is to manage. How can companies balance this demand for variety with this drive towards efficiency? As a brand, I mean, what I've learned in the later years of my career, more recent years and working with a lot of different companies, it's all about focus. And I think this lesson was learned in the focus, for example, at Trader Joe's. Four to 6,000 SKUs, depending upon the time of year, compared to a traditional grocer who has 60,000 SKUs or 40,000 SKUs. Still, it's, it's like 10x. It's too much. And it creates this decision paralysis for the consumer. So if you're thinking with 
the consumer mindset always at the forefront of your decision-making, I think you'll make better decisions. If you, if you sort of spray and pray, as they say, it's not going to work. You're not solving any problem by just adding more. How do you sequence what you bring to market and focus on what is going to solve a consumer problem. I think that that's the key. Not more isn't always better. And that's one thing that is 100% consistent across every company I work with lately. Everybody's problems are the same. And it's all about how do I focus on what problem to solve first, sequencing those priorities and, and whether it's a brand or a retailer, I think the problems are in parallel and very much overlapping. It's about figuring out what to do first and what's going to have the largest ROI on whatever decision you decide to go down. You're, you're, you're good. You, you can never have all the data either too little data and you're not going to have enough to make a decision too much data. You're way too late and you've missed the boat. So it's like, you got to get in that sweet spot of like, I was talking to somebody yesterday. I think it's like 50 to 70% is the right amount of data where you're not too late and you waited too long to make a decision and you're not too early and taking too many risks. So I think it's this like this notion of focus. So limited options, sequencing those priorities and figuring out like how to get to market as quickly as you possibly can and, and getting to the next fork in the road where you have to make that next decision. I, I love that. Absolutely. Well said. It reminds me of something one of my mentors told me, which he said, Laura, you don't always need to be data driven, but you need to be data informed. Love it. It's and, and I'm like, that's it, right? Brilliant. Because you're, you're not always going to have five years of historical data and year over year and and perfect, you know, but you need to be understanding how to measure. I call like the qualitative and the quantitative in decision-making, especially as someone in product innovation or packaging innovation, where you're so close to the consumer or marketing, you have to have instincts. You have to be always out in the market, listening to your consumers, looking at the data and marrying the two. And that's how you truly find the insight. And by the way, we should, we should all be really grateful that this is still the way to do it because AI cannot do this right now. Right. Like as human, as humans, we're the ones, you know, making these connections that don't seem obvious, but I think we should all be leaning in on the things that really make us people in an age where technology is just advancing in leaps and bounds. So I think that's really exciting. One thing I don't want to minimize that a lot of folks, this space is evolving direct to consumer. You talked about retail, brick and mortar, e-com. Can you briefly explain these channels to people? (laughs) And then I'd love to hear kind of an overview of how you're seeing brands operate in this space. Sure. So brick and mortar, obviously you walk into a physical store and you're seeing the physical product on the shelf in the packaging. You can touch, feel, sometimes smell the product if it's fresh product and you can make a snap decision right then and there. Check out, have the product with you. Direct to consumer is either a brand or a platform who is selling directly to you. So in a brand's case, it is somebody who has an online shop and it could be, it's also multidimensional. It's not just the direct to consumer brand. It could also be sold in a store like Thrive Market or like Amazon. There are many, many online marketplaces through which 
a, a company can reach a consumer directly. Obviously, if you are a brand and you have your own direct-to-consumer store, you're, you're retaining all the data and insights and consumer behavior as they navigate through your site and check out or don't check out. And all of those are in, you know, informing you of their shopping decisions. You don't get that in brick and mortar. You get very little information. You can buy data, what we call scan data, for example. You know, what, what are people buying through the UPC scanners through through the store. So this is something I think about on the daily, literally every day. I'm thinking about sort of how to improve grocery shopping. I grocery shop for fun. This is my life. It's something that actually excites me. I don't think we've figured it out. Grocery hasn't changed in the brick and mortar sense. It's evolved and it's improved a little bit, but no one has solved for the, what I call closed loop from the direct to consumer back into the store. And how do we get them to sort of use both channels as a way to drive velocities in a, for a particular brand? Or, you know, we talk a lot about customer retention in the direct to consumer space and getting customers to come back. You know, you walk into a Safeway, let's say, for example, there are 60,000 plus SKUs on the shelf. I mean, it is so hard to figure for me personally to go in and figure out what do I want to buy? I have to have a very specific list. I don't go to a Safeway to sort of discover stuff. I go to other retailers to discover. But Safeway serves a purpose and they are solving a problem for a certain consumer. But I think that there's a lot of work to be done in the brick and mortar space, in the direct to consumer space. There's a lot of challenges in both channels, no question. And it's just a matter of time and some really smart people in the room to figure this out. Absolutely. And one of the things that I enjoy observing is these channels there you companies will activate multiple channels, right? So you look, if we look at the really successful direct to consumer brands, I would say Warby Parker early pioneer, you know, and bringing glasses, the, the idea of like, you could order glasses online, they'd ship them to you. You could try them on, you'd ship them back. There's now Warby Parker stores because they understand the value of brick and mortar. It's a brand experience, right? They're doing it in specific markets, you know, away luggage, same thing started out online. They now have stores, you know, many grocery companies have added online offerings. And so I, I don't think, you know, Trader Joe's being that maybe the, the, the standout of just doing what they do really well, but brands do have to think about multi-channel how can, but, but, but at the same time, you're, you know, your point of everyone needs to focus. Wow. It, how do you figure out what to do and where to go? I mean, I think it comes down to it's both all of the channels are going to cost money. You have to invest in all these channels. And it's a question of sort of which bucket to invest in and how it comes back to my earlier point of sequencing your priorities. How can I be profitable in these channels and how do I how do I get my product out there so customers see it? and taste it and, and come back to it, but in a way that is individually profitable. So scale doesn't solve all the issues. More doors doesn't solve all the issues. And when I say doors, I mean more brick and mortar stores, more distribution. You know, if the product sort of unit economics, as we say, don't work, you know, you have to solve for that, break it down, brass tacks. Like, how am I solving these business problems one by one before I get out into every possible outlet, whether it's online or in person? 
to make it work for the company. So there's no one solution for any one particular brand. It's really nuanced and it depends on the supply chain. The supply chain has been up in arms, you know, since COVID. There's, you know, the contract manufacturing space is going through massive changes. It's just a really volatile time right now and it's hard to navigate. So it's it's about understanding what your priorities are as a business. You know, are you investing in growth? Are you investing in brand building, brand awareness, you know, and how much runway do you have? Because it costs money. All of this stuff is expensive. You can make money, it's, but it's all about getting the consumer to think about your product and coming back to it. You're right. And I mean, liquid, I, what is it? Liquid death, the water brand is about to IPO yeah. over a billion dollars, something crazy like that. So if they, if people have been selling bottled canned water, water. Years, <laughs> if they can figure out how to canned water can be profitable, there's hope for all of us. Right. Yes. I mean, that's a marketing dream story. So uh, you it know, is. And it's, I, yeah. And it's brand consumer insight, giving, you know, solving a problem people didn't really know they had, right? It's kind of like that trifecta we just talked about. And I think it's so important for us to think about frameworks and to look at success stories and say, what, what was it that they did well? Right. And so, and how can we repeat that? Or what are our values and how does that align with our values so we can execute on our unique opportunity? Because I don't, I don't, this is why I love consumer goods and food. It's you can't just rinse and repeat what other people are doing. You're not going to be successful. You know, we talked about pros and cons of each of these approaches, and we'll be right back. Speaking of innovation, is your team spending more time chasing data than on new product and packaging development? Specrite can help. With our specification data management platform, you can streamline project management, quickly build out bombs, and forecast both the profitability and sustainability of your products. Go to specrite.com to learn more. Now back to the show. One of the pros of direct-to-consumer is you're getting a lot of audience data. You're getting that data. So I can look at it as a marketer or a product person and say, huh, if I'm Thrive Market, for 4th of July, people are all of a sudden adding ketchup, mustard, and relish. Maybe I should offer them hot dog buns, right? Or And that's just a, an oversimplification, but sure. because you understand what people are buying, you can look at trends. Oh, what are people buying in addition to this? Could you offer a coupon to increase that? Where when you're sold through traditional brick and mortar, you're not really understanding the context of which your product is being bought in. The role of packaging is also very different for these channels. If you're thinking about being on a store shelf, it's about standing out. You know, it's about communicating your value proposition and differentiator to the consumer, where if you're direct to consumers selling through online, you really have to think about your transit packaging. Is this going to make it to person, a person in one place? How is it going to be packaged on Amazon? That's different than shipping a pallet to a retailer. So, you know, how do companies balance these different challenges by each channel? You know, it's, it's a, it's a real challenge. And I think that there's a whole sustainability angle around it too, that it could be a whole conversation in and of itself, but it's about function and form is the function of the product or excuse me, the packaging working for the product, you know, in brick and mortar, like you said, it's very different. You have to attract attention. You have to talk about the value prop. What problem is this solving for the consumer? You can do that differently online because you can put up images. You can talk about the nutritional, the nutrition facts 
facts panel, the panel, the ingredient deck, what this, you know, what attributes are about the product that you don't have to showcase necessarily on the shelf in a passing moment with, you know, 59,000 other SKUs sort of next to it. Although think about Thrive Market, they have thousands of SKUs too. And it's, it's, there's filters and other ways to sort of navigate through that, but the packaging, but it does have to arrive in a, in a good form. You order a bag of chips on Thrive Market along with a bottle of barbecue sauce, you're going to have a bag of, you know, potato chip crumbs to maybe coat your hot dog and then put it on barbecue. I mean, (laughs) but it's, you know, so packaging does matter. There's challenges from a sustainability perspective, not only in the individual units packaging and all the plastic that's in the world, obviously in the recyclability factor, but also the packaging and direct to consumer in order to get it to you in a state that is consumable. And in the way that you expect, not to mention perishable shipping. So there's a lot of online direct to consumer brands who are in the frozen space or the refrigerated space. And I think that there's a lot of challenges that have yet to be solved. Consumers, direct to consumer is not going anywhere. Sure, it's expensive to ship frozen, perishable. People want it though. They sometimes don't have time to go into the store or there's a different reason. Each consumer problem is different depending upon the different cohorts of consumers. You, and you can't be everything to everybody. So if you have to figure out who you are as a brand, what is important to you, align that with the, what is in the package and then sort of package the whole thing up, sorry, pun intended, to make it work for that particular consumer. But you can't be everything to everybody. It's again, back to that spray and pray. It's never going to work and you're not going to be a brand. It's going to be there for the long run if you're trying to be everything. Absolutely. I spend a lot of time with packaging leaders and this is just such a challenge. And one of the challenges they face is the gap of knowledge between, I would say, three different groups. You know, the internal company vision or values of sustainability, of which now I think every company at least has an idea. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are incorporating it into their business model, which is exciting. The consumer and their understanding of sustainability and recyclability of which there are many myths that I continue to find out as a consumer that are terrifying. Like most things that are plastic are not recycled because it's not profitable for a MRF. And so even if you feel like you're putting it in the blue bin, it's still probably going into a landfill, you know, and then the third one, our governments are starting to tax people and regulate California just passed extended producer responsibility. We're saying to brands, that now you're responsible for the end of life of this package that you're putting into the world where before you didn't have to think, you know, brands could kind of sell it and say, good luck. You know, we hope it, hope it gets take, you know, taken care of, but maybe not. And now that's simply not the case. You know, the, the United Kingdom has a plastics tax for companies. So this stuff is converging. And what I'm seeing is there's a, we talked about data, a lack of ability to make truly the the most sustainable decision because people are not looking holistically at the problem. You, you pointed out something that was so important, perishables. Okay. If I order something online and it arrives and then the food's bad, I'm throwing it away. So if you, if you talk about sustainability, it's not just what's your packaging made out of how much waste is happening from a product that is either broken during transit arrives no longer, you know, being able to eat or consume, that's not sustainable. Not Um, to mention what it took to get the product from point A to point B for, you know, the footprint of that. So, and so what, what we're seeing and what we're trying to empower with people at spec, right, is to take all of your product information, the raw materials, the ingredients, the formulas, the packaging, 
run a whole life cycle assessment on it. So you can get that 360 degree view of not just looking at, is it virgin plastic or not? How much water did it take? How much carbon emissions did it take to then truly say, and then looking at the consumer experience of what happens if this doesn't make it what, and then making a truly more holistic view of your, of your packaging decisions. And I, it, it gave me an idea. I hope someone steals this idea because I'm not going to use it. Who's here. listening? Who's out there? Who's out there? I love Lululemon, huge fan of their leggings on their labels. They have a tag that says, I think it's Lululemon. If not, someone please correct me. And it says why we made this. And there's, a, and it says like, we made this because, you know, da, 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 da. We added pockets because da, 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 da. And if companies could start talking about why we packaged this, you know, here's why we chose plastic over glass because glass would have broken. And we, you know, and just educating the consumer a little more. I mean, man, I with e-commerce, there's a ton of space for this. And the, the amount of times my parents send me pictures of things packaged incorrectly as if I am personally responsible for fixing this in the world. If I had a dollar every, I mean, I love it. Right. Cause yeah. they're so enthusiastic and we've all done it. We've all taken a picture of something packaged in a really dumb way for sure. or at least silly to us and been like, this is terrible. Right. But what if we could educate the consumer? Hey, this is why we made this decision. And this is why it's in line with our values. And this is how you can dispose of it. Think about, you know, it's not, it's not a one size fits all, but at least it's a start in education and awareness. Well, again, you don't want a one size fits all. You want to attract that right customer. Who's going to develop that loyalty and think about sort of the customer retention, you know, and brand sort of loyalty creation by doing something like that and just communicating with your customer. I love it. I mean, I always think through the end consumer decision, are they going to put this in their cart, whether online or in person? You know, it, it, there's nothing more satisfying to, than to still see to this day, more than a decade later, stuff that I've created at Trader Joe's. And I hope Trader Joe's doesn't discontinue them now that I'm saying this, but stuff that I've created that people are putting in their cart. This happened the other day. I was in the store and they're like that to me, it's like these customers are coming back. It's solving a problem. You know, and I did a lot with packaging. I worked in the produce category, not to go back to, you know, to rehash too much with this, but I... Un unpackaged a lot. I don't know if people remember the days of apples and four pack clamshells at Trader Joe's. It was so disheartening to me in the early 2000s that we were doing this and people not only couldn't touch and feel and smell their apples, the waste of packaging for apples. And it was an operational, operational decision because it was just hard to do it operationally at the store level. And we wanted to make it easier, but it wasn't good for the product and it wasn't good for the consumer, not to mention it wasn't good for the environment. So we changed it and we figured out a way and I'm proud to have been a little bit a part of that. Oh, that's so great. What a great story. And it, it again goes to the point where I love seeing when packaging decisions become business decisions because packaging used to be last in line, right? You'd make this great product, you do all this micro research, and then you're like, all right, ship it. All right, put it in a bottle, right? And it was kind of the, the last thing you thought about. And now, you know, it's looking at, okay, if we don't want to package this, what does that mean for the business? What does that mean for the product? What does that mean? And I forget who told me this. Again, I talked to a lot of packaging folks. Someone once told me, Laura, many packaging engineers they don't just want to do packaging. It's not about packaging. It's about getting the product and the job that that packaging is doing. They're like, they want to do it. They're like, it'd be great to live in a world with 
with very little packaging, right? Where everything has just enough, right? We're not wasting it. It serves the right purpose. I mean, that's kind of the joy of packaging is when it's done really simply, but effectively there's a lot of, listen, there's a lot of challenges. There's, there's a lot of reasons why each category may or may not live, you know, live up to that ideal. But I'm always reminded that the people on the front lines take this stuff so seriously and they're, and they're thinking creatively, like you said, you know, in your, in your current role, you advise many companies on innovation. You talked about, you see similar challenges, you know, what's the biggest challenge that people are hiring you to solve right now? Right now it's about runway and how can we quickly get to profitability while still growing without running out of runway. The capital markets are really constrained if you're not showing growth. And I'm by no means an expert investor. I dabble a little bit in, you know, just wanting to learn about it. But brands are trying to get traction and brand awareness and velocities and all the things that they need to get, whether it's in whatever channel, direct to consumer or brick and mortar. And it's a tough, it's a really tough time right now. So it's about you know, depending upon the age and stage of the company I work with, I'm working with a company now that's a little bit late, later stage and they're well-funded, but they're having challenges scaling and, you know, finding the right contract manufacturers to help them scale their product because they, you know, and they're actually in more in the food service channel, which is a new to me channel. I've, I've done a, quite a bit in B2B, but not so much in food service, but just scaling their ability to make their product is a real challenge right now because that side of the world the contract manufacturing space is going through a lot of consolidation and a lot of competition. And you either need to be, you either need to be just getting started with the really small sort of incubator kitchens who are more than happy to sort of get you off the ground or the really big manufacturers who have, you know, 100,000 unit MOQs, minimum order quantities. There's kind of no media, there's no, nothing in the middle anymore because so many have been acquired. So there's a lot of challenges. It really just depends on the stage of the company. I think if you can make it through the next sort of 12 to 18 months and get some traction and brand awareness, you're likely to survive because this is some of the toughest markets I've ever seen. That's good feedback. And as a lover of brands, I'll be sure to make sure I'm trying new things and contributing to the ecosystem and not just buying my my personal favorites, because if, if we all want variety, we have to support it. So yes. that's that's great feedback. Thank you so much. I'm going to close out with my personal favorite segment, some rapid fire questions. The first is what's your favorite product right now can be anything. OK, this is so random, but I am dabbling in tomato mayo toast. So I am going through different kinds of mayonnaise, which is not something that is sexy or whatnot, but it is the it is the moment for tomatoes in in this time of year in California. Heirloom tomatoes are just hitting their peak. I make my own homemade sourdough. For me, it's about sourdough slathered with mayo, a huge hunk of a heirloom tomato and flaky sea salt. So for me, I'm, uh, if you're a mayo company, reach out. I'd love to try your, try your product. I'm a huge fan of all the mayo innovation that's happened, especially putting avocado oil in it. There's love been it. a lot of reformulations and just reimagining mayo. And I think, love that. All right. Second one, what packaging trend are you most excited about right now? packaging trend. I think, you know, the ones who are really having success with sustainability, I think a lot of interesting packaging trends are happening in the fermented space. So I am excited about fermented packaged products because I think it's this bridge between a 
CPG sort of processed good and a whole food. And it's let's marry the two and ferment fermented products are challenging to package. So I think that there's an opportunity, not only in the sustainability space and finding the right kind of packaging, but what's going to work for that particular product, which is super challenging to package in and of itself. Because if you know anything about fermentation, it's there's you know, I'm not a scientist, but there's a lot of issues with bloating and gas and all of And I'm not talking on a personal level. I'm talking on a product <laughs> level. Yeah. I was going to say it's science, right? Because I imagine things are, things are expanding. Maybe things are exploding yeah, or something, yeah. something going on. That's, that's more challenging to package. Our last one is kill, keep change. I'm going to give you a list of three products. Usually they're random, but I'm going to stick on, on the food part for today. You have to pick what you would kill or discontinue what you would keep as is and what you would change. And then how you would change it. So your first product is one of my personal favorites, which is Trader Joe's orange chicken. Delicious. People the love second it. one, right? Good. Well, 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 you, you have to listen to all three okay, or, listen, or you can pick, okay. but that's Sorry. bold. Sorry. I mean, listen, so okay. excited. your second, no, I appreciate the enthusiasm. The second one is Nespresso pods. The third one is Olipop Cola. So keep kill change. You got Trader Joe's orange chicken, Nespresso pods and Olipop Cola. Okay, I'm keeping Nespresso Pods. I think it's a brilliant product. I think there's obviously, we're talking packaging issues there, but I think they're making improvements, but I think the product is quality. I think there's a lot of ways to brew coffee, but I love a good Nespresso. So I'm keeping that. I'm sorry to say I'm killing Mandarin Orange Chicken. No. Not a favorite of mine. I know it's a cult favorite of Trader Joe's. To me, I think there's better products out there. And I know this is a very unpopular very unpopular opinion. So sorry to say. Well, hopefully we don't manifest that. No, no, no. I'm just sure that, we're, my, we're not going to manifest it. Everyone go buy the orange chicken this weekend. I can't have my heart my God, more, than, run more than one time a week. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Just not a fan. Just, it's a personal, not a fan. Sorry. And Shane, I would change Olipop. Sorry. I know people are loving Olipop. I'm a Spindrift girl. I would change it to Spindrift if I could. I'm not a fan of sugar alcohols personally. I love sort of naturally sweet things, but to me, they're overly sweet. I like sort of the no natural flavors. Give me a little bit of seltzer with a little bit of fruit juice and I'm a happy camper. Listen, I... I... I don't think you're wrong on that. I will say, though, if you're in the mood for a root beer float, they have a great root beer. You know, it's a a nice occasional. It's a nice occasional treat. We love we love all the products. It's just a fun game. I like to play play. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. How can people follow you? I would love to connect with you on LinkedIn. That's probably the best. It's a wonderful community, and I tend to spend a lot of time there. I've really enjoyed your perspective. I know we were talking about protein alternatives today yeah. uh, and, and it's a really good spirited debate. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to review the podcast, you can do so on Apple and Spotify and, and leave a comment. You can also hit me up, Laura at specright.com. If you want to be a guest or know someone who should be and find me at LinkedIn at Laura Fodi. Catherine, thank you so much for joining and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. Beyond the Shelf is presented by Specrite, the first cloud-based platform for specification management. Say goodbye to spreadsheets, share drives, and legacy systems, and digitize your specs in a secure single source of truth. With Specrite, you can easily share and collaborate on specs with other departments and across your entire supply chain network. Taking a spec-first approach enables you to accelerate product and packaging development, go to bid faster, report on sustainability, 
and ultimately spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. To learn more, visit specright.com. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T dot com.